Welcome to the Leader Think Podcast, where we discuss personal growth and concepts for improving organizational culture. This is your host, Philip Grison. As you increase your wisdom, I hope you enlighten others on your path towards greatness. If you want to go further, head over to leaderthink.com. Hey, everybody. Today we have a very special guest. We have Mike McCarroll, President and CEO of ProSafe Solutions. Mike is who started ProSafe and helped us develop all the tools that we have that help organizations achieve a better safety culture. Hey, Mike, how you doing today? Doing great, Philip. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Pleasure to have you on the podcast. I can't believe it's been this long, but I'm glad I finally have you here today, and especially to talk about this topic of drift. I'm... Um, but before we get into that, I wanted to share a little bit, since this, this podcast is focused on leadership, um, when I was in my 20s, you gave me a book by Wayne Dyer called Your Erroneous Zones, and that book opened the door to all the information that's out there on increasing your self-awareness. It, it really changed my life. Um, from there, I think you gave me a book by Tony Robbins, but but that Wayne Dyer book started this path. And I was wondering, what started that for you? Did someone introduce those books to you, or, or how did you come across that information? You know, I've always been interested in uh, self-improvement. And uh, a number of years ago, I came across a book called Handbook for Higher Consciousness, and when I read that book, a lot of bells just kind of went off for me. And uh, the more that I read that book, the more I became interested in more self-help type books. And I also was going through a period of life that was sort of difficult, and I was looking for some answers, and it sort of led me to Wayne Dyer, uh, which led to many more self-help books. And so I guess that's kind of how that got started. Okay, so two things there. One, it's... Uh struggles that make us want to search out that information. But two, I, I noticed that the the name for it, self-help, that back in the 90s, that seemed to be the title that, that people gave those kind of books. And there was almost a little bit of a stigma there to those books. But today, it, it's mindfulness, it's self-awareness, it's consciousness, it, it's leadership techniques or traits. And it's interesting how those those uh, things have become so much more accepted. Um, but anyway, appreciate you turning me on to Wayne Dyer. At the time, we didn't have podcasts and things like that, but it was a a, a great thing for my development. Um, so today, we're, we're covering the six principles of human performance. And I brought you in to talk about drift. I think that's something that you really have a passion for. Um, so could we start out with what is drift? And how does it lead to incidents or at-risk behavior? Okay, so first of all, there's two types of drift. There's organizational drift, and then you have personal or individual drift. And so let's talk about organizational drift first. Organizational drift is a slow incremental deviation from rules, policies, procedures, practices, and it happens in every single organization. And none are immune to it. And the ones who are the most prone to it are the ones who perceive themselves to be the most successful. Unfortunately, that perception of success is usually based on false indicators such as the 
recordable incident rate, which is a very poor performance metric. It's a, it's a rear looking metric. Uh, doesn't really tell us much about anything coming down the road. It's just a sort of a historic measure of safety failures. And so when organizations are guiding themselves by something like a recordable rate and they're not familiar with drift, then that drift is happening. Uh, the numbers look good, but that drift is happening. And what happens is this, this slow incremental decline into disaster. And, uh, you know, it, it's really at the root of many, many, many uh, catastrophic events. So you had mentioned when the numbers look good, then that can lead to drift. I think that we as humans have this natural tendency to not change when everything's going right. And, and we were just talking about that, that when do people search deeper self-awareness when things are going wrong? So if everything's going right, why change anything, right? Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, that's what happens is the numbers look good, but we're slowly drifting, we're slowly... Uh, deteriorating in terms of our defenses because all defenses erode over time because of drift. And so what happens is that those slow incremental deviations become normalized. Uh, you know, there's a term for that. It's a normalization of deviation within the culture. And so what happens is there's a decision made to deviate and that becomes the new norm. Then over time, we tend to drift a little bit more. And then when nothing happens, that kind of gets taken as a guarantee that nothing will happen. And we tend to drift a little bit more. And organizations can be completely blindsided thinking they're doing great and have a catastrophic event. And it's almost incredulous when it happens. In hindsight, it's pretty obvious why it happened. But as it's happening, if people are not familiar with drift, how to catch it, how to manage it, then uh, they can uh, be bitten. So drift happens both on an organizational level, but also on an individual level. And can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, humans, it's part of human nature to seek less effort. Uh, people are always going to look to do things more efficiently and to expend less effort. So that within itself sort of lends itself to drifting. And so we all do it. You know, people personally, they uh, uh, do little at-risk behaviors uh, because it's more convenient, it's more comfortable, uh, you, know, it's, uh, you know, it's easier to do, and that becomes a new norm. And, and unfortunately, that affects the risk tolerance and the risk perception that that individual has. Every time that they do something at risk, uh, or they deviate and they get away with it, then the tolerance for the risk increases, but the perception of the risk tends to decrease uh, while there's been no change in the risk at all. But yeah, people, uh, people drift too. They always will. You know, with that, that concept, I think some people can view it as a person being lazy or cheating a little bit, but subconsciously we have that motivational triad to conserve energy and that's happening subconsciously. And so in the mind of a worker, it might not be that, Hey, I'm cheating or skipping a step. It might be that I'm being efficient. What do you think about that? Well, that's exactly what it is, is that sometimes people do feel like they're uh, 
being more efficient, actually helping the organization out. And sometimes, you know, the organization kind of wants people to be innovative and wants them to find ways to be more efficient and to do the work quicker. And um, so sometimes the organization can contribute to that uh, on the individual basis as well. Yeah, I think that's a concept that we always have to communicate to clients that from one view, drift is someone being lazy, but in reality, they're stuck in the middle of a goal conflict of get increased production, but also take all the time you want to be safe. And so sometimes what a manager or supervisor sees is someone being complacent or lazy when in reality, they're being efficient. Yeah, and you know, there's sort of this dichotomy that happens in that we want workers to be innovative, we want them to solve problems, we want them to to do better and and be efficient. But and we like that when they do that and they're successful. But then when something happens, then when there's a tendency to blame the worker for being innovative and uh, not sticking right with the uh, strict procedure. That reminds me of something you say a lot, that the difference between a uh, safety shortcut and being efficient is did no one get hurt? Yeah, simply the outcome, right? <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, so could you give us some, maybe some specific examples that you've seen of where organizations have drifted and what the outcomes might have been? Yeah, let's talk about a couple of broad ones, then I'll talk about a couple of client-specific ones. Um, you know, one thing that I use in HP training, human performance training, is, is Deepwater Horizon. Uh, that movie is very specifically about organizational drift, and it's about how that organization drifted from their own testing policies, their own contractor management uh, practices, their own uh, 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 procedures. And that happened very slowly over a, a long period of time, which is the way drift works. It's not a sudden thing. It happens very slowly and very incrementally. And the, the thing that was really significant about that movie was that they just had a safety celebration that very day celebrating seven years without an accident, handing out plaques and awards. And that very day, they had a multi-billion dollar catastrophic event and never saw it coming. And, you know, that's the way drift works is that uh, had they known about drift, had they been able to catch that drift? But again, they were guiding their safety process based on lagging indicators like the recordable rate and the, uh, the lost time rate. You always say that when we get close to zero, that's when the major incident is about to occur. And, and you know, the other thing with that, that we're talking about Deepwater Horizon, we're not talking about some small organization. We're talking about sophisticated cultures can have drift occur. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the organization as in, or the organizations, I should say, involved in that, they were major corporations and they had very, very sophisticated safety processes and they were really good at the industrial safety approach of addressing small injuries, but um, that's about as far as it went. Well, that's a great example, Mike, with uh, Deepwater Horizon. Do you have any client-specific ones that you might could share without saying any names? I do. Um, you know, we had a client a while back that we picked up, a construction company that had two fatalities within a uh, two-week period of time. And this is a company that has uh, had a relatively good safety process, and their numbers looked really good. And when I got a call from the president of that company, he said, we were blindsided by this. 
And what happened is that the first one was a gentleman had an object dropped on him uh, on a construction site. And then within two weeks later, they had a gentleman who fell out of the side of a high-rise building. And the, the comment from the president of the company was that we've got one of the best recordable rates in the construction industry. We've got one of the best insurance experience modifiers in construction. We've hardly had a workers' comp claim in five years. We didn't see this coming. We thought we were better than that. And ultimately what it was was even though the numbers looked good, they were slowly drifting in some of their own processes and procedures. So what, what really caused that was drift. It wasn't the, the technical issues of, of dropping an object on someone or someone falling out of a building. You know, that view that we have that long-held belief system of looking at EMR and incident rates as a gauge of how we're doing, and I think that as a safety profession, we're starting to realize, we're all becoming aware that that is not a good gauge, definitely not a great gauge, a necessary one, but not great. But the history there, I think, makes people think they're doing a lot better than they actually are. Yeah, and unfortunately, that does delude too many companies. And, you know, fortunately, a lot of folks are changing that, but that's still pretty prevalent out there. And it really has got long tail roots in history all the way back to Heinrich in 1931, unfortunately. Okay, so do you have another one that you want to share? I do. I've got a couple more I want to share. Um, we've got a, another client, and, you know, we've been doing a lot of HP training with this particular large construction company over the last few years. And um, the president of this company, just like many executives that we deal with, I, and, and I, I just got to say this, that drift is one of the things that executives tend to key in on when they hear about and they learn about it. It really gets their attention. And so we were doing training with this particular company, and the president of the company actually set in on what we call a champion's course. And then he came back later and actually set in on some of the two-day courses we were doing with some of their operational managers. And he was so into this drift thing that he began insisting that on the first hour of the second morning of the two-day class that we conduct a drift session. And what he wanted to know from his people, what we would do is break them down into teams, give them about 30 minutes to brainstorm. And what he wanted to know was, where do you think we're drifting? And not just in safety. Where are we drifting in quality? Where are we drifting in production? Where are we drifting in customer service? Where are we drifting in every area? And I'll tell you that the commonalities that came out from going around the country uh, doing that same exercise uh, were pretty astounding. And uh, just to give you an example, uh, some of the common ones that came out was one was that they were drifting away from their pre-work briefings. What they used to spend a pretty significant amount of time on pre-work briefings, but because of the time factor and trying to save a little bit of time, it is sort of deteriorating just to sort of a check-the-box type exercise. Uh, another area that they were drifting was just doing their anchor bolt logs. Uh, you know, in order to keep up with the anchor bolts that are put in and how they're epoxied in and those sort of things, they sort of drifted away from doing that, and they started having anchor bolt problems as a result of that. One of the big ones that came out that really got my attention was in that company when they hire a new superintendent or a new project manager or a new operational manager, they would have them to come into the office and they went through a week-long indoctrination of how you do things in that company. 
And that was very effective. They covered all their procedures and just the, the, the mindset of how you do things in that company. But over time, they drifted away from doing that. And what happened is they shortened it down to two days, and then it got shortened down to one day, and then it got shortened down to not at all. And what happened is as the construction volume grew and they were hiring people from other companies, they were doing things the way other companies did it rather than the way they wanted things done in that company. And so essentially they were actually losing their own culture and the way they do things in their uh, company as a result of that drift. Wow. You know, you, you say a lot that human performance is not a safety thing, that it's just an operational philosophy and affects all areas of performance. And I think those were some great examples of how drift can not just affect safety, but the hiring process and, and everything we do. Well, that's all great, Mike. Um, you know, before we get into addressing how to combat drift or manage it, I, I want to talk a little bit about ProSafe's six principles of human performance that some of, of what we teach came from the Department of Energy, but you felt it necessary to add drift as its own principle. Could you talk a little bit about why? Yeah, you know, the principles that came out of the Department of Energy work, uh, and that was sort of post Three Mile Island, uh, was prior to any writings, uh, at least that I'm aware of, about organizational drift. And later on, uh, folks like James Reason, uh, Sidney Decker, and a few other folks began writing about drift. And so that kind of came along after those original five principles. And since drift is such an important component and it underlies so many things, I just felt like, why is that not a principle? I mean, if anything should be a principle, drift should be one. And so we decided to add that, to, to make a sixth principle um, and add it to, to those five. Good deal. Yeah, if, if it's something that most of us are unaware of even seeing happen on an individual and an organizational level, then it definitely is an important principle. So sometimes it seems like, one, when an incident occurs, I think that people have a, a natural reaction to want to implement a new rule or a new policy, that we see that happen a lot in the safety world. Um, but then there, sometimes there's this perception that that's a one and done, that, okay, we've got a new ladder rule or, or some new JSA-type policy and we've implemented it, and everybody knows, and, and so now we're just going to do it. But that's not really what happens, is it? That we tend to, we need to massage those and check on them. Can you talk a little bit about that, about that perception of the one-and-done policy and how that's not the way things work in the real world? Yeah, you know, there's a lot to be said about that. One is that, uh, and I do want to repeat what I said earlier, all defenses erode over time. All defenses erode over time and because of that drift. And regardless of what defense we put in place, there's all kinds of pressures in an organization uh, that, that can cause drift. Uh, just the whole thing of doing more with less causes drift. Things like error precursors like fatigue, for example, can cause drift, especially if people are working uh, long hours for extended periods of time. Uh, then that kind of sets forth that engine of drift. Competition for resources. You know, every department or every uh, work location is always competing for, uh, for resources. 
And so that kind of sets the engine for drift as well. There's many ways that that happens. And so the thought that we can just implement any defense and that that defense, we're done, we don't have to check on it anymore, we don't have to upgrade it anymore, it is largely false. Uh, whatever defense we put in place over time, there's going to be a huge ten- uh, tendency to, to drift from that. Uh, the other thing is, and you had mentioned that we have a tendency to implement more policies and more procedures. You know, usually it's not the fact that we need more procedures or that we need more rules. Typically, we have enough rules and we have enough procedures. Um, And it's usually because of the fact that there's gaps in those rules or there's gaps in those procedures. uh, And what happens is the tendency is to add more procedures. And what that does is it actually widens the gap to compliance. It actually makes the drift worse. Because when people perceive that a procedure or a rule is so onerous that they almost can't even get the work done. In real life, what they really do is they kind of keep the eye out for the supervisor or the manager or the safety person. Then they go right back to doing what they were normally doing, uh, which is kind of the normal way they work, right? You know, the other part of that is that we all know in, in human performance, we talk a lot about work as planned versus work as imagined. And Procedures oftentimes are written by very smart folks uh, in the office, but they don't do the work. And if they don't do the work, and if those procedures don't match what it takes to actually do the work, then you get what's called procedural drift. And people come up with their own procedure because ultimately they have to get that work done. And that becomes part of tribal knowledge of that work crew or that group. So the question then becomes, do we know that's going on? Do we know that they're having to skip steps because that procedure doesn't match the work? Do they have a culture and an environment where they can come up and say, this doesn't match the work. I can't use this procedure. And do we listen to them and do we put boots on the ground to get them involved in helping uh, write a procedure that actually matches the work? You know, um, that's great information. We've talked a lot about Philip Atkinson and how culture change efforts fail due to the emotional component. And, you know, on one side, I think that management truly does care about their employees. Yes. And, and so an incident occurs and there's this emotional element that I've got to come up with a fix, right? We, we want to fix the issue. And I think our brains aren't so good at accepting that we don't know what the fix is, right? We're always looking for the magic safety dust. And and so the other part of that too is, is like you said, sometimes management, and, and they may even have pressure. They might may have higher ups that, what are we going to do about this? And we need some time in there to consult with those who do the work to help develop the policy, right? Yeah. And the last thing they want is more more policy, better policy is probably what they, they want more than anything, right? That is it specifically. You know, the, the other, and I want to come back to something you said earlier. You said that all defenses erode over time. And I think that's part of what makes human performance hard. Because when you combine that with the whole, where's the magic safety dust thing I can buy and then we'll fix all our problems. But that's not it, is it? That we have to constantly massage it and manage it. That makes it tough. You know, um, 
kind of getting out of the scope of what we're talking about, but when we talk about integration and sustainability of human performance, um, I mean, that's it, is that you have to, uh, the, the last stage of that is maintaining those defenses. Is you know, it's, it's, Some people call it safeguard management. Some people call it defense management. But those defenses have to be managed because of that erosion. Right. That's right. Okay. Um, we've talked a lot about drift. We've talked, uh, uh, you've given some great examples. And um, how do we deal with it, though? Do you, do you have any thoughts on how do we manage drift, both on an organizational level and an individual level? Yeah. You know, the first step is to be aware of it. Uh, and to make people in the organization, the people have to be educated on what drift is and why it's important. Uh, the second step is having mechanisms in place to catch that drift. And drift can be caught in a number of ways, but you have to catch it before you can manage it. And so just some ways to catch drift, and, and I'll kind of talk about ways some of our clients are doing that. Probably uh, one, of the, one of the first ways to catch it is the culture assessment process that we do with our clients. Um, many of our clients have found out that the focus group interviews tend to uncover latent conditions that currently exist. And those latent conditions got there through drift. Uh, those represent that e erosion of the defenses. Uh, and so it catches those latent conditions and it catches the, the underlying drift oftentimes that leads to those. Another way is, and, and I very much encourage people to do this, is a very simple thing that anybody can do, and that is to hold drift sessions. And so let me kind of explain that a little bit. A drift session is not at all unlike what I was talking about with the president of that company that insisted that we um, break people into teams, have them to kind of brainstorm for 30 minutes where they think drift is occurring, and then you capture all of that data. And if you can do that with enough people and you can look at the commonalities and trends there, then you know you've got something to work with. Uh, once, once that's done, then you can uh, put action teams together, just like you do our culture assessment action teams, and they can address those areas of drift. And that's what that company did. Uh, for example, uh, we talked about the anchor bolt logs and the pre-work briefings and the indoctrination things. And they put action teams together around that. And so they addressed those areas of drift and pulled the organization back to where it had been previously before it had drifted away. So drift sessions are easy to do. Now, that being said, you can also do personal drift sessions. Now, that same company I'm talking about, about the president of the company, they not only, they're a construction company. And they've started on their job sites doing job site drift, and individual drift sessions. So what they do once a week when they're doing uh, sort of a mass safety meeting, they will ask the people attending the meeting, where do you think we're drifting on this job site? Not just in safety, but where do you think we're drifting in anything on the site? Uh, because they've, you know, they've kind of told them what drift is. You know, People have to know what that is. They've told them what that is. And uh, they also ask them, after they've gotten that data, where do you think you are personally drifting? And now, you know, when you first start doing that, people are kind of a little scared, maybe, but, and you have to build trust around this, and people have to see 
that you're dealing with the issues that they bring up. And it really opens up the culture a lot. But I'll give you an example. One of their people was telling me that in Galveston, Texas, a while back, uh, they had a guy that kind of stepped up and he said, well, I believe I'm personally drifting and wearing my face shield. And they said, well, why is that? He said, because it's too hard to get. Because in order to get that face shield, I have to walk almost a half a mile out to this Connex out here. And the Connex is all disorganized. And you have to kind of uh, go through a bunch of junk to even get to it. And my foreman is on my case about we need to hurry up and get this work done. So it's just a lot easier just to not go get the face shield. And they said, what would fix that? And he said, put the face shields closer. So what they did is because they work in a hospital, they, uh, they put a PPE station on one of the mid-level floors so that anybody there, if you're up upper floors or the lower floors, have to go no more than two or three floors to get to the PPE station. So they make it easier. Which, by the way, from a human performance standpoint, that's a, a lot of it, is simplifying things, making things easier, and removing some of the complication and complexity. There's a lot of overlap with these concepts, isn't there, from the, the systems to the complexity and the learning culture that we want to have. To it identify. all blends together. Good deal. Good deal. So, Mike, do you have any other specific examples you've seen of how companies manage drift? Yeah, I know of a chemical plant that had uh, the plant manager wanted to start holding drift sessions. And so his name was Frank. And he started quarterly town hall meetings with his workers and would invite anybody that wanted to come. And uh, these, were, uh, these were essentially drift sessions, and he called them Frankly Speaking. And what he did is he would uh, invite employees to come to this session, and he would exclude supervisors because he felt he was getting filtered information from his supervisors. And so it was just, it was just the plant manager and the workers. And he would get them in a room. He would explain a little bit about drift. And then he would say, tell me the truth. Expose reality to me. Where are we drifting? And he was gathering valuable data that he was getting right from the people who do the work and not having that filtered through supervisors. That's an awesome example. And that's an awesome example of leadership, too, with that plant manager. You know, while we're on that, Philip, one other way that drift can be caught uh, in order to manage it, is just being out there. Field presence, being out there. You know, in human performance, we talk a lot about the gap between work as imagined and the way work actually goes. That's called the operational gap. And that, that difference in the way that we plan work and it actually goes out in the field is massive. Work rarely goes the way we think that it goes. And so the question is, do we know that stuff is going on out there? Do we know we're drifting? Do we know we've got bad procedures? Do we have the field presence and the relationship with those workers? And we find that a, a, a problem in lots of organizations where managers either don't get out in the field enough or when they do, they don't personally interact with the workers and ask them, where are your barriers? Where are your stumbling blocks? What support do you need? What can we do to support you? What do you see as some of the solutions uh, to some of the barriers that you're facing? The more that we can do that, we're, we're constantly and continuously capturing that drift. And once we know about it, again, we can manage it. You know, that, that brings up a, an important issue of going out into the field. And um, I want to start with we're not passing the bad apple buck here that um, 
a lot of times, you've mentioned a lot about how we're doing more with less and we have less resources and where do we borrow from the safety department, right? Um, but a lot of times managers just feel they don't have the time to go out there, right? And right. it's imperative that we make time. And I love how you touched on too that people need to know how to engage with workers. And although the slaps on the back and good job are all coming from well intent, that's not what we're looking for, right? And, and you know, the other thing you made me think of just on the micro scale of how easy it is to implement some kind of JSA type process. And we tend to measure that with numbers, how many were submitted and the quality of those are going to be a, a greater opening into a, a lens of where drift is occurring. So yes, we've got to get out there. We've got to make time for it. I think some of our clients are getting better at that though. I mean, we've got a few that are, are actually scheduling that these days. Yeah. That's good to see too. Yeah. Okay, so um, Mike, that's a lot of information, and a lot of times people struggle with where do we start. I think the first thing is drawing awareness to the concept of drift, that it's not an inferior human that's lazy, it's a natural perception of being efficient, right? We gotta start with there. Yeah. With, we have to start there and, and draw awareness to these concepts, both organizationally and individually. Um, Two, there are things we can do to get that information. And you've mentioned whether it's a, a manager doing some kind of town hall with the employees. I love how you said, let's keep the supervisors out of it for this one. Not that they don't have valuable information. It just makes it a little bit more of an open environment to speak freely. Um, so we've talked about that. With all of this, what have you seen have been the best things to do? What, what have people been most successful with when they tried to manage draft? Fixing procedures that are bad, uh, getting rid of onerous rules that are useless. You know, sometimes we have rules in companies just for the sake of having rules. And sometimes they don't make any sense. And the more that we can get rid of uh, senseless rules, we can fix uh, procedures that are deficient, that don't match the work, that's the best place to start and get the biggest bang for the buck right there. So that, that's a, a great one. More rules does not mean more safety. It just means more rules, right? Yeah. But can we constantly review the, the rules we have, the procedures, and also you had mentioned seek employee input or seek input for those who do that work in development of those rules. Yeah. And, you know, kind of just to go along with that, uh, we had a power line company uh, a few years back and they actually, in their company, they have a, an employee led safety committee. And that committee writes all the policies, all the rules, all the procedures in that company for safety. It, it's not the managers and it's not the safety department. It's the actual workers themselves. Now, they get reviewed by management and the safety department to make sure that they have integrity and that they meet the law. But once that's done and that's all approved, um, then they have procedures that match the work because it's done by the people who actually interface with the work every day. But here's the, the side benefit. They have tremendous buy-in because of the fact that they created the rules. And if one of the linemen out in the field complains about a rule or a procedure, they say, hey, we wrote that. That's our thing. That's not something that was dictated to us from management. And so they have a tremendous amount of buy-in on top of everything else. That's a great way to deal with it. 
Um, okay, so let's finish off with managing individual drift. That um, th- this whole podcast was about remembering to catch what you don't see happening, right? And so we've talked about some great tools on an organizational level. Um, I think on an individual level, since we're aware of this, I know I, I can use my Outlook calendar to help me plan for drift, right? I can, I can help myself remember where I'm slacking. Um, do you have any thoughts there on individuals managing their own drift? Well, again, you know, I think the first step is just awareness. And you have to keep people constantly aware of it because people forget about it over time. And so I think that's one of the advantages of doing those drift sessions in those uh, pre-work briefings uh, or in a safety meeting, doing that on some type of a regular basis. Because the more people are aware of it, the more they have to think about it, the more it's top of mind, and the more it becomes kind of habituated to be looking for that uh, in our own selves and not just collectively in the organization. Awesome. Thank you. All right, Mike, I really appreciate you coming by today and sharing your thoughts on Drift. Any final thoughts or anything that you would like to say? No, I just uh, think it's such an important concept. And, you know, we added that uh, principle because it's so important. And I think most of our clients have found that to be a very valuable principle uh, to help guide their uh, organization. So uh, I appreciate you having me by today. This was fun. All right. Thanks again, Mike. If you learned something valuable today, please share it with others. For more information, head over to leaderthink.com.